Hello, and welcome to a very special final season finale episode of Things My Boyfriend Likes, the podcast where I try to impress my boyfriend by talking about things he likes. So happy that we've made it through this journey together. This is a very special episode. I worked really hard on it, and I'm very excited to share it with you. Uh, But first, uh, we must pledge our allegiance to our sponsor, Theodore, ruler of crows, demon of the dark beyond, seer of the unseen lands. May he be ever merciful and not turn us into goo with a flick of his demonic black wings. All hail Theodore. May his reign be as long and as bloodless as possible. Thank you, Theodore, for making all of this happen by the good graces of not murdering us before we finished. For today's episode, I really wanted to do something kind of Warhammer-y. And after getting my ass banned from the Warhammer website, after registering my account and clicking on Warhammer TV, seriously, I clicked a link on their own website and they said, I can't come back. (laughs) I used a legit email and everything. It's a shit show. How am I supposed to buy anything that way, Warhammer? I thought you wanted my money. I guess you don't want... It's fine. Look, I decided to pirate a bunch of Warhammer horror novels uh, because that's a thing that exists and I can't watch Warhammer TV. (laughs) So, here we are. Warhammer Book Club, let's go. So, it's not all sci-fi and fantasy in the Black Library, I've found out. Uh, There's actually about 15 horror novels slash novellas published by some of the most renowned authors in the Hammerverse. Despite reading three books set in this universe, I'm still going to call it the Hammerverse because they haven't given me another name for it. The lore is about as dense as wet cement, and they spread it like they're trying to cover up a body in an unfinished foundation in the dead of night. Seriously. I've never tried this hard to parse something that is clearly so over-the-top stupid and yet also so detailed. It's like a spider's web of idiocy and I have no idea what's going on. It's been... I've been... uh, It's been over 15 hours of my life that I will never get back and I still have no idea what's going on. This is just like the time I tried to assemble my mini at the store and you abandoned me for some reason and I couldn't get the glue open and the guy next to me was like, is this your first mini as he helped me open the glue and I felt like such a bimbo. Anyway, I don't know if um, the licking and the purring is uh, being caught by the mic, but Kuro is also here um, to help me co-host, so... um, You heard me talking to myself, and I just needed to be involved. So, we're here together. So I opted for horror novels here because I'm not a masochist, but also because it's niche enough that you might not have heard an analysis of these ones, and also because you're never actually going to read these, so I might as well enlighten you on a corner of the Black Library that you are too scared to delve into yourself. I would also like to take a moment of silence for the 16-year-old inside me who is dying right now at the idea that I am voluntarily writing extra book reports 
for an English teacher that I have a crush on just for fun. She is very disappointed in how my life has turned out. For this episode, I've read Darkly Dancing, The Bookkeeper's Skulls, and the first of a vampire murder mystery series called Drakenfels. We'll be discussing each of them individually, and then I have some overall thoughts I want to discuss at the end. We're going to start with Darkly Dancing, that I have frequently mistaken in my notes as Darkly Desiring, because it's a stupid name either way. This one was written by the guy who wrote one of the major series in the Warhammer library, the Horus Heresy, whatever it is. Um, So I thought it would be interesting to get a sample of his writing in a genre that he doesn't usually write in. Um, This is actually a novella enacted as an audio play, not an audio book, but like with sound effects and voice actors and shit. Honestly, it was quite delightful. Um, I haven't listened to anything like that since my uncle gave me a bunch of Sherlock Holmes radio plays from the 50s. Um, and it's it's nice. Um, yes, Carl. Uh, apparently, Warhammer really has a corner of the nerd audio play market. Um, apparently, this is something that they do not infrequently. Um, so that's a fun fact for you. The story takes place all in one night at an opulent masquerade ball in not Venice, where a beautiful young poet, once exiled for her anti-capitalist rabble-rousing, has found herself unexiled and in need of food and a new patron. She was invited there, presumably, by her foppish friend who informed her of her unexcellation, and he introduces her to a potential patron who admires her work the man who exiled her in the first place. The poet spends quite a bit of time trying to figure out what his motives are, uh, especially since anyone else would have just executed her on the spot for her poetry. In the process of showing how her whole personality is basically just writing poetry and being mad, she finds out that her friend actually wasn't the one who invited her at all. It was the patron. When you spell it out, like that, it seems pretty obvious. Um, it's it's not the greatest twist, but like he tried. <laughs> um, the patron promises that he only wants to make amends and give her what he owes her after completely ruining her life. You know, he couldn't let her get away with it, but wants to make it up to her. At the end of the night, we discover that actually the masquerade is a ritual meant to set the nobility free No one asked to specify what that meant, actually. Um, Feels like a basic, if you're going to make a deal with an entity, you'd kind of have to, like, be specific. But, uh, I don't know. These guys just didn't really look into the fine print. Um, And the idea that he wanted to give her what he owed her was her own death. Which I thought was, like, a fun, I just want to give you what I owe you. Your execution. Um... So essentially, he tries to sacrifice her to this god in order to get the nobility free. Um, So I don't know exactly who this god is. I assume it's Slanesh or Slanesh adjacent, based on my very limited understanding of the Warhammer pantheon, um, mostly because it's a hot woman. Um, She only introduces herself as Truth, 
Um, we don't know if that's her real name or if, like, that's a facet of a goddess. Um, and it could be, like, a number of other, like, minor goddesses or a demon or I don't, I don't know. It's not really answered. I get the sense that maybe I'm supposed to recognize this. But I don't. So, pros of this piece. Everyone loves a dastardly masquerade ball. The ending was a bit obvious by the end. At a certain point, they, like, lock all the doors and she realizes she can't leave. And it's like, oh, okay, clearly this is some something going on. Um, but, like, the pacing was decent enough that I didn't guess it in the first ten minutes, which is pretty good for me. Um, there were some really good haunting elements, like a woman with a color-changing mask. And, like, she hears singing throughout the... A hedge maze and like that's that's very creepy that's nice um also the like snippets of poetry that we get are not awful they're not great but they're not awful i think that could have been much cringier so props for that cons of this piece this is a piece about truth the villain is named truth and they spend more time than they probably should have talking about what is truth? Is there only one truth? All of that stuff. It's not subtle. Um, there's specifically a conversation at about the 75% mark that is incredibly painful to listen to as they have like a very surface level debate about what truth is. What is the truth of fire? Is it the only the ash and the spark? Is it everything at once? Does that mean if it's everything at once, can truth be multiple? Blah, 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 whatever. Like, high school level I'm 14 and this is deep shit my main problem with this aside from the preachiness was that it just kind of popped out of nowhere at the 50% mark we realized this is about truth but before that it doesn't really factor in and then after that it's like he realized what he was writing about and then had to hammer it into our brains the protagonist was punished for speaking truth to power um, and then is punished again as the nobility seek their own truth, um, which leads me to draw the conclusion that the truth is evil, as truth, capital T, the goddess, is evil. So, yeah. Truth is bad. Never tell the truth. The truth will set you free, and by free we mean free of your own skin. So, yeah. I think this would have worked a lot better if, in some way, the protagonist was deceiving herself. Um, if she was lying to herself in a way that where we also see the nobility lying to themselves, that would make more sense. Where, like, in avoiding the truth or selecting only the truths that she wants to believe about herself, she got herself into trouble, sure. Um, but, like, yeah, I'm not really feeling... Like, they, they took so much time to hammer this into my brain that this is about truth and what truth is. And then the metaphor just kind of falls off if you think about it too much. And that's just not great. I talked about this in the tragedy episode, that in horror, you almost always have to have the protagonist breaking a rule. Often this rule is unfair, and breaking it results in disproportionate consequences but there's always a rule that is explicitly stated and then broken so that we understand how the protagonist was punished within the rules of that world again does not have to be fair 
but it it makes its own sort of logic. That didn't happen in this book, and I think that really would have helped. Um, if there had been a rule that she shouldn't have been at the ball, or if she there was a rule that she had to always tell the truth and she made a small tiny lie to get in or whatever, that would have made more sense to me. Um, but yeah, it just, just all kind of fell apart. So, <laughs> would I read this author's super popular horror series after listening to this? Eh, maybe. Um, I do think that he does a good job of the atmosphere, which, like, I don't know, it's a masquerade ball. If you fuck that up, you shouldn't be a writer. <laughs> it's easy. Just handing you atmosphere on a plate. Um... And I do think that if he was given more pages, um, maybe the preachiness would be spread a little thinner. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, I feel very middling about this one. On to The Bookkeeper's Skull. This was also novella length, but it was about four times as long as Darkly Dancing, um, just for reference. I do like how Warhammer doesn't shy away from stories outside the traditional short story or full novel length. Um, I think these kind of bite-sized stories are pretty great. I wonder if maybe they were originally included in anthologies. Like, neither of them are, like, short story enough to be in an anthology, I think, unless you had, like, four or five novellas back-to-back, but... I just wish more people did this because it's it's just a nice little nice little snack, um, and I really I like that they're open to that. Anyway, so on retrospect, I do know that a librarian and a bookkeeper are two different things, um, but I think I just assumed when I picked this up that um, nobody would write about an accountant. <laughs> Like, librarian is a very specific job title in the Hammerverse, so maybe a part of me thought that that was just what normal librarians were called. Um, but yeah, uh, this is this is about accountants. Whoops. The Bookkeeper's Skull follows what seems to be the heir to an enforcer dynasty, um, which to me sounds like something between cops and inquisitors, if both had absolutely no oversight or accountability whatsoever. This guy is sent on his first mission to a farming labor camp, an assignment he sees as beneath him, with the help of a more experienced enforcer that he soon befriends. The camp is made up of the bookkeeper, who is the guy in charge who makes sure that the harvest makes it to the right people in the empire. Not like a cool librarian, sexy librarian dude. Um made up of the bookkeeper, the enforcers, um, and slaves, essentially. Um, this camp isn't a place that they send prisoners, but the serfs are killed indiscriminately and threatened with death, death or worse, if they don't hit their quotas. Um, yeah, it, it's fundamentally slavery. The trouble at this particular farm, labor camp, whatever you want to call it, is that there have been a series of gruesome murders. With every gruesome murder, a scarecrow appears in the field that no one claims to have touched, sometimes wearing the clothes of the deceased. 
Oh, and the bookkeeper has a skull that's basically like if Amazon Alexa was in a human skull with spider legs that could fly and had glowing red eyes. Just take a moment and just take that in for a sec. Now I'm sure, based on the title and that description, you can't possibly guess the twist that's coming. Yeah, the skull did it. There's definitely, like, the implication that the soil is bad or something, and that this area turns things evil. Um, they find historical records that the farm is beyond a wall, which I assume is, like, where civilization ends um, or begins. And they, like, crashed down the wall 500 years ago, and terrible things have been happening ever since. But, like, it it's... But at the end, it's neither a human or supernatural occurrence. It's just AI gone rogue, which is, I think, though it can be interesting, is maybe the least interesting option out of all the three possibilities. Randomly evil robot is just fun in a B-movie, not so much here. While there's definitely elements here that I think are really good like the, the scarecrow thing is a great hook i love that it's creepy and awful aside from that the whole thing feels a bit disjointed the story starts out with our hero arguing with his soon-to-be-dead queen mother about his life choices followed by seeing his soon-to-be-dead king father talking about his life choices and finally going to the army it takes him like a quarter of the book to get to the camp and get things rolling, which is bad. We could have condensed all of that into a conversation later on about like his family and his motivations, especially since like he has the last name of a king that's bound to come up. Um, but we could even have started with him meeting. Crow, please don't move things off the table. Thank you. We're live on the air right now. I don't know if you know that. Please. Sorry about my co-host. He's still in training. Um, but yeah, they, they could have done a better job getting the story moving faster. There was a lot of lore thrown around, but like not knowing any of it, I don't feel like I missed anything. I don't really care about the, the grander politics of it all. And I didn't need to because the character arc of I'm an inexperienced upstart, reliant on my privilege, thrown into a mess beyond my capabilities so that I can grow and prove myself to myself and my parents thing. That, you know, I, we get that. I, I don't need to know why being an enforcer is important or a valued part of society or whatever. I, I get it. Um, they did throw around a lot of names and like a lot of like legion names and planets, but I didn't catch any of that and it didn't really affect my enjoyment of the story I don't think the the only thing that I really took away um is that in the Hammerverse peasants are treated like shit just like they are everywhere else and enforcers are dicks and bookkeepers are dicks and bookkeepers are not librarians so that's that's what I got seeing as I know nothing about the Hammerverse um, feel like they could have done a little bit more. Overall, I would give this a two out of five. Um, I would probably not read anything by the author again. Um, good concept, poor execution. 
So our third and final book today is Drakenfels by Kim Newman. This was the first in a trilogy about a 600-year-old vampire, Genevieve, who comes to star in a play about her own relationship with Dracula, I mean Drakenfels, that accidentally calls him back from the far reaches where he's been hiding out for a few millennia. The plot kind of meanders a bit. Um, it's been difficult trying to like summarize it for you just because it goes a lot of places and not all of those places connect back to things. Like most of that is probably set up for the second and third novels. Um, but also despite the meandering, I, I wouldn't say it's in a bad way. I had fun going on that journey. It was, it didn't feel pointless. Um, even if I didn't get to see the resolution of it in this book. The main characters include Genevieve, obviously, who is a vampire bartender. Uh, she doesn't have a lot of personality, but she's pretty cool. She's pretty chill. Uh, we then meet the eccentric genius playwright, who is in debtor's prison for essentially trying to stage a festival that's ruined by a plague, which feels like a very fun pandemic callback, even though I'm pretty sure this was written before the pandemic. This is the point where I'm writing the script and I Google the date. Uh, so this is actually from 1989, and it reads like something that could have been written in, like, 2021. Uh, mm -mm. I didn't realize that. I thought it was much newer. There's no 80s fantasy tropes, like the obnoxious idiot not-human follower or um, rampant misogyny or racism. Uh, so that's good. That I like it even more now. Okay, so we meet the playwright. And then we meet Prince Oswald, who's about to inherit his father's throne. It's not like a king thing, but I, I don't know. Um, he's about to step into his, his throne. His father is senile and spends all of his time replaying his favorite battles in a Warhammer-style board game, which is fucking hilarious. It's so good. It's my favorite part out of all of these books. <laughs> the author making absolute fun of his audience is just it's great. Prince Oswald commissions this playwright to write an epic play about the fall of Drakenfels, which is his most heroic triumph, obviously, and in the process uh, will let the playwright out of debtor's prison. <laughs> so the guy starts staging the play. He takes a bunch of his friends from debtor's prison and like puts them to work on this, which is fun and kind of gets the gang back together from his disastrous firefest thing. <laughs> Genevieve is playing herself in the tale and is reunited with Prince Oswald, who, like, you know, they used to bone and stuff. Then, just as things are starting to get underway, one of the actors is murdered <gasps> and his eyes are missing. The play goes on. <laughs> Drakenfels himself, who everyone thought was dead, appears to ruin the final act of the play, but Genevieve defeats him by feeding on him as a vampire, which, because they're different kinds of vampires and they're not the same kind, um, kind of works, and he is defeated for real this time. Yay. The book does deliver on some pretty good atmosphere. Um, seeing everyone run around trying to get this lavish play together is just fun. Um, the murder provides enough tension to keep the suspense going. 
uh, without it being all like world ending high stakes and Drakenfels doesn't appear until like the very end. So you don't really know that that's who you're supposed to be up against. Um, they do a really good job of setting him up as like very, very, very evil Dracula. Um, there's a beautiful moment where they talk about Drakenfels when he was alive, I guess, um, a few hundred years ago, invites all of the nobles to like a beautiful banquet. It's kind of like a peacemaking thing. And all of the nobles were like, well, you know, he's been evil for a few hundred years. Like maybe he's had some time to like work on himself. Sure. Um, so all of the nobles go to his castle and Drakenfels freezes them in place in front of this huge feast and they all starve to death. And at a certain point, all of the characters come back to Drakenfell's castle and see the aftermath of like all the skeletons and these lavish dresses and the the jewels and stuff in front of this, this feast and they're all skeletons and that's just like nice visually, I think. There were references to Sigmar and other politics, but I didn't feel like I was confused or like I was missing out on anything. It felt very just like background noise. Um, the author was very light-handed with it compared to the other two where there were definitely moments of like several pages of just like listing out names and stuff that I did not get. I would give this book a four out of five. It was, it was good. I had fun with it. I don't know that I'd like sit down and read these books physically um, or that I'd pay money for them. <laughs> But since I have all of the audiobooks for free, um, I'll probably listen to book two while I'm working at some point. Like a fun little distraction. It's very light. Um, it's nice. So, overall final thoughts. Were any of these horror books scary? No. Not even once. I do think that most of them did good things with the atmosphere, but it feels more like these were put in the horror category because not because they're horror, but because there's nowhere else to put them. Like they wouldn't really fit in fantasy. They wouldn't really fit in sci-fi. They're just kind of in between. So they're put in horror. Um, how does reading these books change my understanding of the Hammerverse? Like I said at the beginning, I learned shockingly little. It still feels so dense that I have to just like, I feel like I need to take a high school history course on it to understand anything. Like I need it broken down to that level in like a textbook where I have like units on like orcs and Sigmar and like all of this stuff. I feel like I would be totally lost reading a high fantasy or sci-fi from them. Um, but I think what's, what's worse than that is that I've spent a decent chunk of time in this universe now, and I don't give a shit. Like, nothing that they've brought up makes me want to learn anything else. It's all very, like, high politics bullshit that I don't actually have to care about because it's not really that relevant to what's happening on an individual level with these people, even though some of them are royal or, like, very high up. And that just feels like a miss for me. Like, and everything I've learned, all of these books could be Warhammer, but they could also just be in their own universe. And like, I, I wouldn't miss anything. So I feel like there's, 
there's definitely something missing there. There's not really a hook to make me want to learn more, which sucks. Um, but yeah. So this was a slightly longer episode. I hope you really enjoyed our season finale. Please like and subscribe. Uh, let me know what you think. And if you're really, really nice, maybe you'll get a season two. Okay. Bye.